Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. So there are a few things, uh, I want to say, in this world that are more precious than presents, right? Some of us prefer to receive presents, uh, like myself, uh, rather than presents for sure. And presents have their place. It's my love language specifically to receive gifts. So if anyone's listening here or later on, uh, do with that what you may. But, But presents our presence to one another far transcends presence. And presence really are a lousy replacement for our presence, especially when we have these epoch-shifting moments in our lives, graduations or births or uh, weddings, uh, birthdays. And we love to have those who we love around us during those bright moments. But it's specifically felt during the moment of suffering where someone sends you, whether it's flowers or a gift that just doesn't do the job of replacing your presence. I remember a few years ago, I went to New York to visit family, as I do every couple years, and uh, little Evangeline, she ended up in the hospital with pneumonia, and I felt terrible, right? It's not that I had planned for her to have pneumonia while I was away, but I felt absolutely lousy that I wasn't able to be there uh, for little Evie, and I sent flowers, and I sent fruit bouquets, but it just wasn't it wasn't enough. It, it didn't really match my presence there, right? It was the absolute worst. I tried everything, but of course, no present can compare with our presence. And the story of Scripture, I want to say, the true story of the world is uh, uh, the story of God's presence with humanity. Theologian and author Scott McKnight, he says this. He says uh, that the whole story of the Bible can be summed up in this phrase, the witness of God right? The withness of God, that God is with his people. In the garden, we find God with Adam and Eve, working there with them, uh, giving them a space where they can work and play and grow and extend God's rest to the rest of creation. Genesis tells us that God was in the habit of walking with them in the cool of the day, meaning uh, he was constantly with them. But we learn that humanity was not content to just be with God, Uh, They wanted to be God, and so God removes them from his presence in the garden, and now they have to figure out a different way to be with God. But God could not withstand to be without his people, without his partners, without, in effect, you and I, and so he devises a plan that he can dwell with his people despite the fact that they've fallen into slavery of sin. So he creates a people. He calls this man, uh, uh, um, Abraham, out of uh, paganism. He gives him a promise and he says, if you follow me, if you leave your people and if you leave the place that you know and if you go to a place that I'm going to show you, I'm going to make you into a nation that we, if you, even if you look up at the sky and look at the stars, you can't even compare how big your family is going to be. If you look at the seashore and you try to count every, every sand, Every particle of sand, you couldn't even compare that to the nation that I'm going to make you into. And he pulls them out, and he gives them this promise. And you remember, we went through uh, Exodus recently, that these Israelites, these people of God, they end up in slavery. They go to Egypt, and then they're rescued through the hand of Moses. And while they're in the desert, what does God give them? He gives them a plan. That if we were to read it here, like we would, it's, it's boring to us to read the plans of the tabernacle. And he gives them this plan to give them a place where they could be with 
God. And the tabernacle was a mobile tent. It was a, a, something that they had to set up every single time for 40 years. They had to set it up and then tear it down and move. Set it up, tear it down, and move. All we have to do is put out chairs. But they, to be with God, to meet with God, they had to set up, they had to erect this humongous tabernacle. But this is what that tabernacle said. It said that I am with you. I'm the God who goes with. I am with you. I'm by your side. And this was their distinguishing marker. This is what Deuteronomy 4 says. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The tabernacle for the Israelites was God saying, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you stay, I stay. I am with you. And we know later on that the people of God get into the land and God gives them a symbol of his permanent presence with them or what seems like a permanent present, uh, uh, presence with them. The, the Solomon, the second king of the nation of Israel, is given the green light to build a temple for God's people, a symbol of God's stable presence with them. But we know they were exiled and Ezekiel, while they're in exile, he gives them a promise that there's going to be a new plan. That even while now they were taken away seemingly from God's presence, God will still be with them even when they're away from the temple. Ezekiel talks about this. Joel talks about this. When he is given, he's given a vision in Joel chapter 2 about the Holy Spirit coming down and being with his people. The picture we get operating is that there's a God at the very center of Scripture who is committed to be with his people. Even in exile, this is what God is saying, that I will not leave you, that I will not let you go, that I will not give up on you, that I am the God of hope. It's about God's relentless pursuit of being with his people. God is a God of presence. In the garden, he is saying, I am with you. In the tabernacle, he is saying, I am with you. I'm going with you. In the temple, he's saying, I am with you. Even when they go into exile, he's saying, I am with you. And then, and then we get to read this in the book of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt. This, this word dwelt there is, uh, can be translated as tabernacled. That he dwelt, he tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what we need to understand, that the disciples were well aware of the story of the witness of God, that God was with them through the garden and through the tabernacle and through the temple and even through exile. And now they actually have God with them. Like Jesus comes down and I want to remind you what we, what we talked about a few weeks ago, that, that Jesus is the physical representation of God. That what we see Jesus do and say and speak, if we're ever in doubt about who this God is, we look at Jesus and we say, this is exactly who God is. And now this God is dwelling with us physically and personally. And for the disciples, I can imagine if you were there, if you were there, could you imagine? Like, this is the pinnacle now of the story of Scripture. God is finally with us. This physical, this now physical God will usher in the kingdom. And this is where we find our place here in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, when he says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. All the way from Genesis to this point now in the story, all we've been trying to do is to get God to be with us. God wants to be with his people, and he's, he's accomplished it. He's with his people. What incarnation, right? What in the world, in what sense, in what multiversal reality would it, would, would it ever be right for Jesus to say that it is to your advantage that I leave? Like, in what world does that make any sense? This sounds like such a lame breakup. Listen, it's not you, it's me. I got to go, right? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Dale Bruner, he translates the first part of verse 7 this way. He says, the best thing that could ever happen to you, Jesus is saying, is for me to go away. That sounds ludicrous to me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I have the option right now to see Jesus right now, to be physically present, I'm choosing that, like, like no doubt. Like, like, how could it ever be possible that the best thing, the very best thing that can happen to us is that we would not have Jesus physically present with us? And I'm asking, how? Like, make it make sense, Jesus. Tell me the reason. And the question for the disciples and for us is how can this be so? How do we make sense of it in light of the fact that the whole, the whole thrust of Scripture is God wanting to be with His people? How are we better off without Jesus? Nevertheless, He says in verse 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And this is what we need to realize today. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us through Scripture today, that my absence, he's saying to the disciples and he's saying to you right now, that my absence will pave the way for another and a deeper dimension of my presence. My absence will pave the way for another and a deeper dimension of my presence. And that presence, that withness, will come by the way of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, of the Holy Ghost, of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus was limited by his physicality. He never traveled anywhere outside of his jurisdiction. He never wrote a book. Never, you know, he never featured on a blog. He's not on the New York Times bestsellers list unless you count the Bible. Uh, but he's, he's not in any of those things. He was, he was located physically in a space. But he's saying this, that when I go you will actually have more of me. I'm actually paving a way for another and a deeper dimension of my presence. Come back with me to verse 8 real quick, where he says this, And when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you won't see me any longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He continues, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will take, listen, the Spirit will take the Holy Spirit, who right now is active in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, who, who resides in you. We talked about uh, us making our home in Jesus a few weeks ago. Well, let me give you uh, just Let me wake you up to something that he has chosen uh, for us to make his home in him, surely, but he has made his home in you. And what the Holy Spirit does, he takes what Jesus started, and he takes it and he continues it, he expands it, he democratizes it, so that you don't have to be a disciple 2,000 years ago to experience Jesus. This is the point, that he's actually taking what Jesus started and he's making it possible so that all people at all places at all times who put their faith in Christ actually has Christ. And I think what we need to understand is that we don't have a secondhand Christ. That's why secondhand spirituality doesn't work. That's why when we read a book, it doesn't mean that we've been transformed ourselves. It doesn't mean that if we just become adjacent to people who are having spiritual experiences or who have a a deep walk with Jesus, that doesn't translate to us automatically. It means that we get Jesus, that you get Christ, like yourself. And there are three things that the Spirit will do amongst other things, but three things that Jesus wants to highlight for us today. And the first thing is that the Spirit will come to convict. what, What does that mean, that the Spirit comes to convict? What does the Spirit come to convict of. Another way to understand this is to see that the Spirit comes to expose. The, this word convict uh, can also uh, mean expose. The Spirit exposes what's what. Right? That, that's what Jesus is saying here, that the Spirit is going to expose what truly is. And the first thing that He's going to show us what truly is, is sin. He arrives to expose the world for what it actually believes. And the world's unbelief exposes the fact that the world is actually lost. The rejection of Jesus, which by the way, I know there's a lot of questions about what's this unpardonable sin. The only unpardonable sin is a continual rejection of Jesus. And what what Jesus is saying here is that every, behind every willful refusal to accept the claims of Jesus, to accept him as your king, behind that is an unbelief. And so the Spirit will come and expose the true nature of what sin is. Sin isn't just doing something or not doing something. Sin ultimately and underneath it all is an unbelief in who Jesus is. And let me just say this, that that is very different to doubt. Unbelief and doubt are two different things. Doubt wrestles. It it, it argues. Unbelief dismisses. And so I doubt, we doubt so I, I don't want you walking away from here thinking, oh man, if I doubt, then I'm, I'm stuck in this unpardonable sin. That is not what I'm saying. Doubt and unbelief are different things. Doubt wrestles, unbelief dismisses. But the Spirit convicts the world of sin primarily as unbelief. But it will also convict the world of righteousness. It's going to expose the true nature of righteousness. Because listen, if we were there, if we were bystanders, right when we saw Jesus be uh, crucified, hung on a tree, and buried, if we were there, we would look at Jesus, and we would not experience that as a religious, exp- uh, as a religious experience. We would look at that and see a state-sanctioned 
murder. And we would not think at all that this was the Son of God. That that's not going to be what we would see is that this man was judged by God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says that whoever is hung on a tree is cursed by God. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Spirit will come and he will expose this as what it really is, that Jesus actually is vindicated, that he is the righteous one. It doesn't seem like Jesus is righteous, but in fact, the Spirit will come to call that a lie because, in fact, Jesus is the righteous one. He's going to convict of sin and of righteousness, but also of judgment. Jesus was being judged by the world in his death. He was being judged by religion and by the government. And in fact, what was actually happening, what we need to see with the eyes of faith, is that in the act of the crucifixion, the devil was being judged. The one who was trying to judge Jesus himself was being judged. And so the Spirit will come to convict. It will come to expose the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Spirit will not only come to convict, but to expose, but also to guide. We have this present helper who guides the disciples and us into truth. We're not left as orphans, even as much as some of us even right now feel that. We feel like we have been abandoned by God. We feel like he is not here, like he is not present. But we are not left as orphans. We have the Spirit of God himself who guides us through Scripture and through community. And what this does, it should produce in us, and it can produce in us a deep gratefulness and humility. Too often, the church has operated as the proud soul and final arbitrator of truth rather than humbly holding forth truth that we're being guided into by the Spirit. We don't own truth, by the way, as a church. We're owned by it. And so the Spirit convicts the world, guides the church, and glorifies Jesus. The Spirit is a shy member of the Trinity, if you want to think about it that way. The Spirit does not want to shed light on the Spirit. You find yourself a church that is full of the fruit of the Spirit, full of joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, You find a church that is all about speaking about Jesus. You're going to find a church that is full of the Holy Spirit. And so in a sense, we get more of Jesus throughout time and space and history because the disciples had to reckon with having actually less of him. In the grand scheme of things, we are better off without Jesus. Like to say that in that way, we are better without Jesus the physical, historical Jesus. But if we had a choice, and if you had to ask yourself the real question right now, to give up the Spirit, like if you had that ability, if someone had come up to you, you get a genie and what's what's your one wish, I'm going to give up the Holy Spirit to get Jesus next to me. We have to reckon with what we're really going to answer, how we're really going to answer that question. I'm, I'm, if, I'm not pre- I don't think we'll ever be presented with that choice, but if we are, I'm a little bit scared myself that I'm going to say I'd rather see Jesus rather than have the spirit of Jesus living inside us. Do you want Jesus beside you or do you want him living within you? And if we can just be honest with ourselves for just a moment, even if we inch towards having Jesus with us rather than within us, we haven't grasped this promise. We don't yet understand the reality in which we stand right now. The reality with the power, the power that you have right now as the people of God. We haven't yet grasped the fact that we are the residents of God. Like that is wild to think, the residents of God. 
That when, if, if we were to look up God in the, in the yellow pages or the white pages, you, the church, like that is where he lives. It's wild to think that someone like me who is so imperfect, who fumbles all the time, who stumbles forward, can be the residence of God. But do you realize that he, is, he wants this? And he wants you, and he wants to make his home in you. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon prays this beautiful, long prayer. And if we were there, if we were there to see this, the grandeur of Solomon's temple, I, I don't know if we'd even be able to speak. But Solomon assembles the elders of Israel, and he prays to consecrate the temple for service. And he says this, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Heaven is too small for God. Earth is too small for him. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, he chooses to dwell in and make himself known to the world through you. Like, this is it. This is his plan A. This is all he has. Me and you. And Solomon continues in verse 28. He says, Yet we have regard, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, says this in verse 29, that your eyes may be opened night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Listen, like, listen. Maybe you haven't gotten it yet. This is, what, this is what Solomon is saying. This is what I'm saying. That the temple, this dwelling place of God, is the place where God's name is. And maybe in today's age, your name doesn't carry much. But his name carries his will. His name carries his value. His name carries his authority. His name carries his beauty. His name carries his power. His name carries his desires. And he says that where I dwell is where my name is. And I dwell in you. And so it is within this community, it is within, within the people of God that his name dwells, that his name carries his will, that is where his will is seen in the world, where his values, where his authority is exercised, his beauty is shown, his power is displayed, and his desires are made our desires. And let me just tell you here today that because Jesus left and the Spirit came, we now bear the name of God, that we bear the name of Yahweh in our lives. We bear the name of the one Messiah, Jesus. We are better off without Jesus because rather than Jesus being physically present next to us, we have the spirit of Jesus living within us, empowering us. We are far better off without Jesus because if Jesus wouldn't have returned to the Father, the spirit would not have been sent. The spirit was sent to convict the world, to guide the church, to glorify Jesus, and because Christ now doesn't live next to us, but within us, we are now God's loving, we're God's conduits of his love to the world. God's loving, God's convicting, God's guiding, Jesus' glorifying presence is now housed within us. He says that my absence, Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying, that my absence will pave the way for another and a deeper dimension of my presence. God walked 
with humanity in the garden. God gave the tabernacle and the temple as ways for him to safely dwell with his people. He came in the person and the work of Jesus. God has come to us now to live within us through the Spirit. And one day our faith will turn into sight and we will one day walk side by side with him in the flesh where nothing will get in the way of our friendship where nothing, no sin, no dysfunction, no frustration, no evil, no chaos, and one day we will one day, one day, one day be with God as he's always intended. That is where we are going. And as we wait now, I'm going to invite uh, uh, Zach and El up. As we wait now, we can walk, we can actually walk in the freedom of where we're headed. We can actually walk in the, the, the power of, uh, of where we're headed. We can actually walk in the joy of where we are headed. We can actually walk in the holiness toward which we stumble. And as we wait to have access to a real deep, as we wait, we have access to a real and a deep and transformative life in the Spirit. Because as we partner with God in community, as we partner with Him, we become more and more aware of His power in and for us. We become more like Him. And the more we become like Him, our very presence in the world, the fact that you are a mother, a father, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a plumber, we are the very conduits within which the world is convicted, through which the church is guided, through which Jesus is glorified. And towards that end, I just want to say, man, I don't know. I'm sitting here and I'm honestly trying to rack my heart and my brain. I don't know if we truly understand the power that lies within us. Now, and I'm not trying to talk about some self-actualization here. The power that God has planted within us by the Spirit. And so toward that end, I just want to pray Scripture over us today. I want to pray that we would receive this, not as perfunctory, not just, hey, this is just how we close services. I want you to hear this prayer as God's will for you, for your life. And so help me to pray. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know, listen, my prayer, my hope, my desire for you as your pastor is this, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. God's power is not just for us, but it's toward us. That we would know that we would know the power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand in the heavenly places. That the very power that resurrected Christ is the power that is at work in our lives. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above all names, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all.
And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us just a glimpse. If you would give us just whatever it is, Lord, that we need to do, what, the, the things in our lives, the patterns, the sin that we need to repent of, the dreams that we need to let die, the hopes that have been shaped by our culture that need to be put to death today. Whatever it is that is getting in our way of even getting a grasp, an iota of understanding of the power with, with, that you have toward us and for us, the explosive, dynamic power of the Spirit, Lord, if there's anything that is barring us from experiencing that, Lord, may you take it away. May you remove it now in Jesus' name, that we would truly walk in the joy and in the love and in the power and in the energy that the Spirit supplies. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. And the church said, amen.